we are in a new collection, and we're exploring the story of God, and we're looking at it through a framework of a five-act play. Last week, we talked about Act 1, Creation. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about Act 2, The Fall. Next week, Act 3, Israel. Act 4, Jesus. Act 5, The Church. And the whole premise behind this collection is we want to find our stories within the story of God. That is, if we want to make sense and meaning of our stories right here, right now, We have to really understand the story of God. And so we're going throughout the entire Bible in a very short amount of time. And so remember last week we talked about act creation and God's dream from the very beginning was to have a people to be his own, a people to be an intimate relationship. But not only that, a people that would be an intimate relationship with one another and people that would live in shalom with God, with one another, and with all of creation. Remember, we define shalom as universal flourishing and wholeness. Well, this week, we're going to pick up. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take a little turn, but we're going to go to Acts, Act 2, the fall, and we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. Now, one of my favorite authors and writers, Donald Miller, he, he says this, If you have a beautiful story... It has to have conflict. If you don't have conflict, it can't be a good story. Uh, Every good movie that you could think of has a central conflict, right? If you think Harry has to sacrifice himself in order to defeat uh, Voldemort, right? If you think Frodo has to overcome crazy odds to destroy the ring, right? Woody has to rescue Buzz. There's all these great conflicts in some of our favorite story. And what makes a story meaningful is that there's a conflict that must be overcome by the main characters. And so Genesis 3, the one, the passage that we're going to be exploring today is the place where the major conflict of the entire Bible and all of human history in the story of God begins. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Now, this week, um, I got a chance to go on a run for the first time since I injured my back. And man, it was so good. I, I told Alex I ran so slow. Like he, I was messaging him on Instagram. He's like, yeah, I ran a seven-minute mile. I was like, wow. Like it took me 12 minutes because I'm still rehabilitating. But I went on my first run since I hurt my back, and it was so, so good. I went right during magic hour. We live right by the water. And so I'm running by the water. The sun's setting. You know that one day this week, everything was like golden orange and purple. The sky was just so beautiful. I felt the gentle breeze across my face. I smelled the ocean. I looked, and there were ducklings walking along the water. Someone was running with the dog, and all the leaves were blowing. The the gust was just coming across my face, and it was so, so good. And I thought to myself, this is so, so beautiful. Creation is so, so beautiful. And then I was thinking, man, all the people that really helped me when I hurt my back, like went out of their way, like Fatai called me, shared his insight. Uh, Jess recommended a heat pack that I bought on Amazon that I use every single night for way too long. Um, Joseph lent me his Theragun. I'm like, wow, this is such a good creation. There's so many good people in my life. But then I thought, in all of this beauty, where did it go wrong? Like, where did everything go wrong? Because as beautiful as a world can be, why is it also so messed up? 
Why is it that every time I open my newsfeed, I read stories about tragedy, abuse, greed, selfishness, and pain? Why would someone be compelled to attack an elderly Asian man for no reason whatsoever? Why did last night we get an Amber Alert that two children were, were stolen with the car with no regard for their lives? Why is it that this world is so broken? Why is this world so messed up? Why are people so messed up? Why am I so messed up? You know, I believe that it's true that we are a people who have potential for tremendous good, but also horrendous evil. Why can we kill it at our jobs but ruin every single relationship we're in? Why am I so good at what I do but so bad at being a good neighbor or a good brother, sister, or a friend? Why do I lose my temper with the ones that I love? Why do I lie and cheat to get ahead? Where did it all go wrong? And this is the fundamental question that Genesis 3 is answering. Where did it all go wrong and where do we go from here? I'm going to step into the word, but before we do, let me just open with a quick word of prayer. God, we're talking today about the fall and about sin. And I think it can be easy to, you know, receive this message as a downer, like being so overwhelmed by the evil that's in the world, being so overwhelmed by everything that's wrong. But I thank you that even in the midst of the darkness, there is hope. That even before you spoke light into existence, there was darkness and chaos. And even though there's a lot of darkness and chaos in our world, I thank you. It just means that you're hovering over the water, getting ready forth to bring your light. We love you, God. We welcome you here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't we open up to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We're just going to go through this entire chapter And we're just going to talk about what it means for us. Now, this is how it begins. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, if you think about it, this is a really strange way to start the story of humanity, right? There's a magical tree. There's a talking snake. There's a woman in the garden speaking parcel tongue, right? It's a strange story, and we have to realize something, that Genesis may be the beginning of our story, but it's not necessarily the beginning of God's story. Meaning there's a lot of other things that happened before the Genesis narrative that we just don't know about, that the Bible doesn't tell us about. Like, why is there this presence of evil here on earth in the garden embodied by a snake? We don't know where that evil came from or why it was there. Remember that the Bible never said that creation, after God created everything and rested on the seventh day, he never said, and it was perfect. He said it was good, meaning that there was still more to be done. That's why there was a presence of evil in the garden. God did not say it was perfect, but that it was good. And so Gary Brashears, you know, someone that we've been mentioning a lot here, says that Eden 
you know, if you think of Eden, it was like it was created in the middle of a war zone, that there had been this cosmic war between the armies of God and the armies of the devil before the Genesis narrative even happened. And all that to say, the story isn't trying to answer where evil comes from. I mean, that's still a mystery to so many of us. Like, where does evil come from? But it's a story of how evil tainted God's good creation. I like to think of two movies, comparing them side by side. One is Joker, right, with Joaquin Phoenix, and the other is The Dark Knight with Christian Bale and the great late Heath Ledger. You know, one story is all about Joker's origin, and the other story, you don't really know where Joker comes from. In fact, he he gives a crazy amount of different accounts about his origin, but you never really know. And I would say Genesis is more like the dark night. Don't quote me on that. People are going to label me heretic. But, but Genesis is a lot more like the dark night. We don't know where evil came from, but we know that evil was there. And we know that evil tainted God's good creation. Now, God commands Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in the garden except this one tree. Do not eat that fruit. I don't know about you, but growing up in Sunday school, I always thought, man, what kind of fruit was that? Like, what about that fruit? Like, it must have been a magical fruit. I remember I would draw it in Sunday school, and I would draw it with, like, an evil face or, like, draw it back while everything else was red. Like, there, there must have been something wrong with that fruit. It must have been embedded with some magical properties that thrust people into spiritual decay. But I don't think that's true. I don't think there's anything particularly special or magical about that fruit. It could have been anything. And it's like when people come to me and ask me, Mickey, how do you find the one. You know, Valentine's Day coming up. God, how do I find the one? Pastor Mickey, how do I find the one? You know what? Here's a secret. This is a bonus for y'all. We're not even doing a relationship series, but, but here's a secret. You know how you find the one? You choose someone, and they become the one. I tell people love is a lot like the Matrix. Neo wasn't the one until Trinity chose to love him in the same way. You want to find the one? Just choose someone, and they become the one. In the same way, there's nothing special about this fruit except that God said, do not eat from that tree. And so the fruit was chosen by God to represent humanity's covenant and trust in God. And so the snake comes, said, did God really say? Did he really say that you won't die? Did he really say not to eat that fruit? Oh, actually, if you eat it, you're going to be like God. Isn't that what you want? And what's the first thing, the very first thing that the enemy goes after? The very first thing the enemy goes after is Adam and Eve's ability to trust in God. Meaning the very first lie that the enemy presents is this, God is withholding good from you. He's holding back. He's lying to you. He can't be trusted. And here comes the first temptation. The temptation for Eve was for her to decide for herself what was good and what was evil, to play God instead of trusting God. Woo! Now, isn't that still the temptation today? 2,000 years, not much has changed. That's still the temptation of our everyday lives. God, are you really looking out for my best interest? 
God, do you really want me to be happy and blessed? God, did you really say not to gossip or steal? God, did you really tell me not to do this or that? And we feel the need to take back control to be the gods of our own lives because we don't trust in God's goodness. God, you're not working for my good. So now I have to take things into my own hands. And now I have to fight for my own happiness, for my own pleasure, for my own satisfaction, for my own good at the cost of whatever and whoever gets in my way. I get to define what's good and evil in my own eyes. I know what's best for me. If human history has taught us anything, it's that we don't know what's best for ourselves. We're horrible masters of our own lives, and yet this is the temptation of sin that Adam and Eve first encountered in the garden and the temptation that we still face today. Now, some people come to me and say, Mickey, but God would never want me to deny myself, right? There's a reason why I have, you know, Inclination. There's a reason why I think this way. God never wants me to deny myself. I tell him, um, have you read the teachings of Jesus? Literally, Jesus' life, his main teaching was to deny yourself, to give up your life, to take up a life that is better, to trust in God rather than to fight for your own happiness, for your own success, for your own pleasure. Following God is about trusting in what God has for you and trusting that it is the best that he has in his mind, that he is not withholding anything good from you, that he loves you, that you can trust him even when you don't understand, even when it feels like you're denying yourself and you don't know why, but you trust because you know that God is for your good. What's tragic about this first temptation and this first lie is how deceived Adam and Eve were. The lie that God was withholding good from them. When literally, verses before, God said, all of this is for you. It's for your enjoyment, for your pleasure, for your flourishing. The lie that they would become like God if they ate the fruit. When they were made in the image of God, they were already like him. And these are still the lies and temptations that we fall for today. Now, we got to talk about sin. I know, you know, some people don't like to hear about sin, but we got to talk about it. What is sin? And I think a really helpful definition, I'm going to give you two. One is the, the rated G version, and the other is the rated R version. The first one is by a theologian named Cornelius Platinga. He says this, sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. Remember, God's dream was for shalom, universal flourishing and wholeness between God, humanity, and all of creation. There was meant to be a peace that was between all three. There was meant to be a flourishing of human life, of creation, of advancement, of ruling and stewarding the earth together. And so sin is the disruption of that shalom. But this this definition is my favorite. And I wish I could just say it, but some people are going to leave our church if I do. By Francis Spufford, he says, sin is the human propensity to F up. 
Man, if we, this was pre-recorded, I would have, every time I said that, I would just beep it. So you'd be wondering, did he really swear? By the way, I love this church online platform. Funny story. Last week when I was preaching at Canvas, Krista was just weighing on in the chat to like encourage me and say, thank you, Pastor Mickey, at the end of the message. And she accidentally wrote at the end, you know, I'm here double fisting this Sunday. I'm with our church and with your church. And for some reason, church online, the platform, it uh, censored double fisting. And so it just looked like she came in and just cursed. And you know, I don't know if you've experienced this. Dan's done it a few times. But if you type in a swear word, don't try it. Don't. But if you type in a swear word in the church online platform, it will automatically censor it. Anyway, sin is the human propensity to F things up. In other words, sin isn't just breaking an arbitrary list of rules from God. Sin is literally effing everything up around us. It's effing up our own lives. It's effing up the lives of the people around us. It's effing up the world, and it's the disruption of shalom. Francis Buffer goes on to say, what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. It's our active inclination to break stuff, stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being and other people's, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big, fat scratch. It's like when you get a brand new iPhone. It's just inviting a scratch. Now, I hope we are on common ground. In the end, almost everyone recognized this as one of the truths about themselves. You know, this is why in the early 2000s, those producers that came up with the concept of reality shows were genius. Like, we don't even need to write a script for humans. If you get people together for long enough, they will find a way to F things up. My favorite show in the world, Survivor. It's so cool because when people get together, number one, you see some beautiful moments. You see the beauty of humanity. You see such tender moments, people being loving, people being caring and selfless. But on the other hand, the show is literally about, you know, stealing. It's about lying. It's about getting ahead, getting to the very end at no matter what the cost and there's this this tendency when people get together if you could get them together they will find a way to f things up in other words if left to our own devices as hard as we may try as many good intentions as we may have it's not enough we will find a way as francis spufford not me as he says to f things up I think we want to believe that the problem is out there and not in here. That if we have the right political party, that if we have the right policies, the right structures, the right systems, the right education, the right programs, that humanity will find a way to flourish. And don't get me wrong, those are so important. We have to give our lives to fighting for the right policies, for fighting for the right systems and structures. All those things are important. And while, yes, we need to address those symptoms of sin, we also have to understand what is the root of it. We have to understand that the problem is out there only because the problem is in here. And none of us are excluded from that. 
Meaning that as much as we work on the symptoms of sin and work on all the problems and the fallout from sin out there, if we never address the problem in here, we're going to find a way to destroy ourselves again. You see, no matter how well we've ordered things out there, until we find a way to address what's gone wrong in here, we'll never see the shalom that God dreamed of from the start. Now, picking up from verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. If you remember at the end of chapter two, that they were both naked and unashamed. Now we see the opposite. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And so we said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman put me here that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God looked at the woman and said, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. I want, to, I want you to pay attention really quick. Pay attention to the immediate fallout from sin first. They hide from God. Before this moment, they would walk face to face with God, talk to him face to face, walking through the garden, fellowshipping together. There was perfect shalom between God and humanity. But now shalom with God is interrupted. And they hide because no, they, they know they violated their covenant with him. It's like sometimes when we come home and Fig got into a bag of treats, like he cannot look us in our eyes and he's hiding and he's whimpering and he just falls on his back and shows his belly. He knows he effed up. He knows he violated our rules, our covenant together. And so they're ashamed to face the one they were made to be in fellowship with. How sad is that? And have you ever been there? You feel too guilty to come before God. You feel too ashamed to approach him because of what you've done or how you've made a mess of things. So second, they hide from one another. They realize their nakedness and feel ashamed. They hide themselves from one another. They conceal instead of being vulnerable. They run from each other instead of to each other. And now shalom between humanity is interrupted. But not only that, but as soon as God confronts them, they begin blaming one another. Like the man says, it was Eve's fault. Eve says it was serpent's fault. And you ever been in a conflict with someone where you guys are fighting? I'm not saying this happens between me and my wife, but you ever been in a fight or a conflict with someone and both of you are both saying, this is the way you've hurt me. This is the way you harm me. But they don't realize the way that they've, the part that they've played, the way that they've hurt the other person. And it just goes back and forth because none of them are willing to own up to the way that they've hurt. They're so concerned with what happened to them. This is exactly what's happening. And this is why even in our age, maybe in your life, in your relationships, we're so prone to blame. We're so prone to be defensive and deflect because now shalom between one another is interrupted. Now I have to fight to protect myself. Now I have to look out for my own good. We pick up verse 14. 
So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. Speaking to the serpent, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now to the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. Curse you, Satan. Please pray for my wife. By the way, she's doing great in pregnancy. Um, But this, she said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. God is explaining the further fallout from humanity's sin. Now, notice something. God never curses Adam and Eve. Listen, the the curse of sin is not upon you and I. The curse was upon the serpent, was upon the enemy, and it was upon the ground, okay? And so we're not cursed. God didn't curse humanity from this moment. But he says to Eve, Childbearing will be very painful. But not only that, you will have a desire for your husband from someone else that they will never be able to satisfy. In other words, you'll always long for something in others that they can never give you. Come on, how many of you can resonate? I've been there. We've all been there. We all want something from others, and they just can't seem to satisfy or quench that. And to Adam, God says, now the ground that you work upon will be marked by painful toil. In other words, you're always going to be grinding and grinding and grinding, but it's never going to be enough. You're always going to be working and producing and never resting, but you'll never reach the finish line. You'll never feel fully satisfied in what you do. You know, I don't think these were being gender specific. I think it goes both ways, whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter. All of us are longing for something in others that they cannot satisfy. All of us are working and working and working, but never reaching the end of our work, never resting. And this is the fallout from sin. You see, sin affects everyone. It's not just you. It's like those drivers on the road, you know, that are thinking, all right, I'm just going to cross into this lane without signaling. I'm breaking the law, but it's just affecting me. Uh, No, it's affecting all the thousands of cars behind you that are now stuck in traffic. It's like that person thinking that what they're doing only affects them. No, it affects everyone around you. Sin is like a ripple effect from us towards everything that we touch. And so that human propensity to F things up started right here. And this is why as the story progresses, do things get better or worse? This is a Bible study question. The right answer is it gets worse because in the next few chapters, Cain kills Abel, the first act of violence, the first murder. Lamech takes two wives, the first instance of polygamy, the breaking of covenant between one and another one. Noah and the flood, 
the result of severe sin and now the destruction of what creation? Remember, shalom was supposed to be for all of creation. Now shalom is disrupted. The Tower of Babel, people trying to reach the heavens and say, God, we don't need you anymore. We got it. We'll take it from here. Things get worse. And there's an escalation of death and destruction that ripples from this one temptation, from this one lie, from this one sin in Adam and Eve. And people become less and less human as the story progresses. You know, that's exactly what sin does. Sin makes us become less and less human the way that God designed us to be free before him face-to-face in relationship, to be completely free with one another, not having to fight to protect ourselves or conceal ourselves, and to be free to love and cultivate shalom throughout all of creation. But now, instead, we see a breach in our relationship with God. We see a breach in our relationship with one another. We see a breach in our relationship with creation, divorce, and infidelity. Rape, global warming, and pollution, and people that are becoming secularized apart from God, hating God, hating the things of God, not realizing that from the very start, it was his dream for shalom, and all of it, a fallout from sin. And it all starts from this one place, God, I don't trust you. You're holding back from me. I don't trust in your vision of flourishing. And so now I'm going to decide for myself what's good, what is bad, what is right. I'm going to be my own God. You see, the thing about sin we have to realize is that sin isn't forbidden because it's bad. It's bad. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I messed that up. Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. It's kind of like when I was growing up, I just had this weird, I was so drawn towards the stove. Every time that it turned on, like the, it started getting bright red and I would just be so fascinated by the bright color of it that I would just be drawn towards it like a mosquito. And my parents would tell me, don't touch it. And that rule was there for me, not because, you know, that it wasn't just because, it was because touching the stove would be bad. It wasn't just a rule for the rule's sake. It was for my good, for my own benefit. We have to understand that the commands and the teachings of God aren't just the right way to live. They're the best way to live. They're God's vision for human flourishing. And we always talk about obeying God as if we got to follow the, these lists of rules so that we don't get in trouble, so that we stay in the good graces of God. But what if we viewed it instead as viewing God's commands as a guide towards God's dream of human flourishing? This is God's dream. Now, at this point, I hope, I hope you feel the hopelessness of the situation because it is a hopeless situation. It feels so daunting that sin is so big or world is so broken. But check this out. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now he's speaking to the serpent as he's cursing the serpent. So God is heartbroken that humanity broke their covenant with him and entered into sin. But God has a plan for sin. God says there will be offspring that comes from Eve one day 
who will crush your head, serpent, who will crush your head, devil, Satan, who will crush you. There is coming an offspring. There is coming a day when someone will crush the head of the enemy. And this is the very first glimpse, the very first mention of Jesus in the entire Bible is right here, right after humanity's sin. Meaning from the lowest point of humanity, God already had a plan. He already had a plan to redeem things. And God says, even in this moment, I'm not giving up on my dream. That there is coming a a person from the offspring of your line, Eve, who will bring order, who will make things right, who will restore shalom between us, between one another, and between all of creation. I have a plan. Now let's go to verse 21, and we're going to end here. Verse 21 through 24. Thanks for bearing with me. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. In other words, he can't stay this way. There has to be something that we can do. We don't want him to be permanently in this of separation, shalom disrupted. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken, and he drove the man out. He placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now I want you to pay attention to this. Who is doing the hiding and who is doing the seeking? Adam and Eve are hiding. But who's seeking? God is the one seeking. I think when we think of this moment of, of the moments when we sin, we think that God is hiding from us, distant and aloof. Like, God, where are you? And we have this twisted theology that we have to work our way back into the good graces of God. We have to get things in order before we could come before God because he's so holy and I'm so dirty and we can't possibly coexist in the same room together. I can't be before him because his holiness is so much. He doesn't want anything to do with this filth. But who's doing the seeking here? Even in our sin, God is running after us, seeking us out and God's saying, I'm not afraid of your sin. He's saying, in fact, I'm not afraid of your sin. I'm going to run to you, and I'm going to embrace you, even in your sinfulness, even in your filthiness, even in the mess that you've made. And what does he do for Adam and Eve? He runs to them instead of them running to him. They're hiding. They're running. But God's running after them, even in their sin. But what does he do? He makes for them garments of skin, and he covers their nakedness and their shame. Now think about this. Where did God get these garments of skin from? I mean, there wasn't just a rug shop open that he could just go into. Can I get a leopard skin, a lion skin, whatever? Where did God get this skin to cover humanity? He had to sacrifice an animal. For the first time in all of creation, one of God's creation had to die. And so he had to slay an animal Take that skin to cover humanity's nakedness. What does this remind you of? You know, one of my favorite movie scenes, even though I don't think the movie was very good, was the very first Chronicles of Narnia movie. And there's this moment where Aslan, he's coming, and he's taking the place of the children, and he's being sacrificed as a lion. And it's kind of this imagery that God is showing here in Genesis that humanity 
was tainted by their sin, but God already from the beginning was prophesying in his actions about a plan that there would have to be a sacrifice for our sake, a sacrifice for humanity to cover our nakedness and shame, to repair all that we have broken, to restore all that we have effed up. Who is that sacrifice? It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Something has gone wrong and we're all bent away from what is good and we're bent towards what, it, what is evil and something feels wrong here. But we have a savior. We have someone who would undo the fallout from our sin. Jesus is the only answer for humanity's sin. And from the very beginning, God had a plan. I want to ask you something. Have you made a mess of yourself? Have you made a mess of the relationships around you? Are you feeling hopeless because the brokenness in our world is so large? I don't know why, but last night, I just fell into this really deep depression and despair, just thinking about everything that's going on in our world. You know, I was just literally in the... in. In a dark moment, I get this Amber Alert and, you know, someone had stolen a car and thank God they had been found, but there were two children in it. Just reading the stories of the, the, the attacks on elderly Asians during this time, seeing the rift between communities, just seeing so much brokenness and despair in the world. And I felt the heaviness and the pain of our broken world. And this morning I remembered, yes, there is sin. Yes, we have royally effed things up but we have a savior. And for every mess that we've made, we have a savior. For every way that we feel like we've ruined our own lives, we have a savior. For everything that we've broken in our lives, around us, in our world, we have a savior. And while we should, as the church, spend our entire lives addressing the symptoms of sin, We should call out injustice. We should work on the structures and the systems. We should fight for right policies. We should do those things. We need to tackle head on the symptoms of sin. I know, and we need to know, and have confidence that only one thing can address the root issue. Jesus. I believe right now, wherever you're at, he's running to you. And you might be hiding and you might feel ashamed and naked and you might feel dirty, but he's running to you right now. And I believe he's saying, Jesus, my son, is the animal that was sacrificed for your behalf. The one that laid down his life so that I can restore shalom. Will you pray with me, church? Right now, just close your eyes for a moment and I want you to pause and I just want you to just let God speak to you. I don't, I don't know if um, you feel like you need to repent after this sermon. Uh, that's not really what I was going for, honestly. I think more than anything, I want you to be walking away from today encouraged, knowing that there is a hope for all that we've broken in our world. And all of us have done it. All of us know it. And so just take a moment right now and let the Lord speak to you. He's here right now.